if you'll take your Bibles, please, again to Luke chapter 6. And I would like to read from the text again this morning, beginning with verse uh, number 17. And he came down with them. This is after he spent all night in prayer, as we read back in verse 12. And then after that night in prayer, he appointed twelve to be of his disciples to be apostles. And those are named in verses 14 through 16. So then he came down with them from the mountain and stood on a level place. And then we read here with a great crowd, his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, and so forth. The subject matter here of these verses, 20 through 26 here, the Beatitudes and the woes, is very similar to that of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and through 7 as we discussed last week. The difference here, however, is significance. And the most significant aspect of that difference is that Luke, in Luke's sermon, it's described here, he came down and stood on a level place. Whereas Matthew has Jesus going up on a mountain, chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Some seek to reconcile these differences by noting that level places are common on mountain slopes. So Jesus went up on the mountain to teach them, but he sought out a level place on that slope there to teach the people so he could sit and teach them. That might be the case. Personally, I believe we have here different places. And also, as we noted last week, many commentators argue that Luke's version is an abbreviated edition of Matthew's. However, and here's what I really want you to see, is that there are significant differences in these two sermons. And I believe that so that they are different sermons preached at different times, and in different places. Although many of the truths that are found here are repeated in both messages, Luke arranges his subject matter how it differently and includes material not included in Matthew, and we might argue that both Matthew and Luke had different agendas in their messages and their descriptions of the messages. It, explain, it explains the aims of the authors and the audiences that they 
uh, had, but still, it's not unusual for teachers to repeat lessons. I repeated stuff here. Is that wrong? No, it's it's helpful. And and this is particularly true when relating issues deemed important to the teacher. There are some truths that you need to repeat, and you need to repeat them again and again and again, because we are we tend to forget, lose sight. As we noted last week, Peter uh, exemplifies this in his first epistle when in verses 12 and 13 he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. So today's message here, we want to pay uh, particular attention to the large crowds. Luke mentions here in in the verses that we read here, verses 17 and 19. And here's the question. Why are they mentioned? Because clearly the stated reason for Luke's address here, uh, this sermon on the plain, is to teach his disciples. Look at verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples, the ones he just brought down from the mountain to instruct. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and so on. But Luke here includes some detailed information about this large crowd of disciples and this great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Verses 17 and 18. He even mentions those who were troubled by unclean spirits, and they were cured. So this, re this, this reference here seems to be extraneous in the light of the stated purpose, and yet Luke includes it here. In some detail. What then was the purpose of this mention and how does it relate to his sermon on the plain? I would argue that Luke was establishing his messianic status and his instruction, Jesus' instruction was to be understood as coming from their Messiah King, not just a human rabbi teacher. And I would particularly draw your attention to his reference to the Son of Man there in verse number 22, because as I pointed out before, I'm going to repeat myself here, <laughs> this reference to the Son of Man is clearly a reference to the vision which Daniel had in, in Daniel chapter 7 of the, of the Ancient of Days giving to the Son of Man a dominion, an everlasting dominion. That's what it's really all about. That's what it's really all about. So let's look then at this messianic proof, Jesus' messianic proof. And the first thing, to note here, 
when Luke speaks of the crowds that came to him to be healed and to be freed of demonic possession and so forth, he concluded with this statement there in verse number 19. All the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. This is unusual. You don't find that in any place in the Old Testament. There are no Old Testament prophets that did anything like this. Oh yeah, there are miracles from, from time to time recorded there, but nothing like this. And we might say, well, that's because Jesus was God come in the flesh and he had that ability and power that nobody else possesses. Yeah, but I don't think that's it either. The reason is because it's stated in the Old Testament by the prophets that this is what the Messiah will do. It was understood by the folks there in Jesus' day that the true Messiah would not proclaim himself. In other words, he wouldn't come saying, I'm Messiah, look at me folks, I'm the Messiah. In fact, Jesus warned of those people there in, in uh, Matthew chapter 24 who would come in his name. So they, they understood that the, that the true Messiah would not proclaim himself as much as such, but would first do the works that would point to his being Messiah. And that would lead to public acknowledgement of his identity. People would see the miracles that he performed and then they would say, he's got to be the Messiah. Now, can I prove that? Yeah. So, introducing here his ministry on the earth and we looked at this back in uh, Luke chapter 4 when he first introduced his ministry. What did he do? He got up in the synagogue one Sabbath and called for the book of Isaiah and then read from the prophet Isaiah in that synagogue to support his claim of being their promised and anticipated Messiah. There are chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. And, that, and he, did, he cited here from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me, anointed me, excuse me, to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that, in this case, presented somewhat of a problem. Because when he did this, the audience, their, their reaction was at first to, to, to say, you know, boy, we were, we're impressed by this guy. He's so good. He's good. But then they began to think, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? There in verse 22. In other words, although he was speaking with gracious words, they were um, uh, 
amazed at his gracious words. Literally, that in the Greek reads, words of grace. Not gracious words, but words of grace. They began to question his claim. Why did they question his claim? Because he didn't do any miracles there. And he pointed that out. How can I, how can I be Messiah if, I haven't, if I'm not doing the works that will identify me as Messiah? See, there, they, then, then the second problem with that was that they understood that Messiah would come out of nowhere. No one would understand anything about his background or where he was from. He would just suddenly appear on the scene. And so they're, they're putting these things together in their minds and they say, he's done no miracles here and we know his parents. He can't be the one he says fulfills that prophecy. So what did Jesus do? He, he responded by addressing their thoughts. If I claim to be the Messiah, where are the works? Here reported to me in Capernaum. You heard me, heard that there were miracles in Capernaum? How come you don't do them here? And then he gave the reason why. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now why? Why wouldn't the Jesus be accepted there? And the reason is, and he, he explains that too, you would not believe me, even if you saw the works. And why? Because of their spiritual condition. A hardness and predisposition to regard themselves as alone worthy of divine blessing. That was typical of the Jewish people. And he proved this condition by citing two incidents from the Old Testament. Prophets who did miracles. But these miracles were done for Gentiles, not Jews. And that Revelation enraged them and they drove Jesus out of town. They even tried to kill him, throw him off a cliff. Another significant example is found in the next chapter here in Luke chapter 7. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but I just touch upon it here in Luke chapter 7 and verse 19. Uh, John is in prison. And I think he became a little discouraged and so he began to question in his mind whether Jesus was indeed the Messiah because I think John had the same idea that many others have had that Messiah would overthrow the, the Roman government and establish the Jewish government. Now here he was in prison under King Herod because of the Romans. Why didn't God fix it? So he sent a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, Truly, I, uh, he, uh, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
Ah, Jesus was compassionate. And what we read there is, in that hour, he healed many. Didn't say a word to him. He just started healing everybody. And they stood back and watched this. And when he, and when he finished that, he turned to them and he answered them saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Go tell him what you've seen and heard. And then to clarify that a little, he said, The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news of, preached to them, and, the, and blessed is the one who is not offended. That is, caused to fall away or fall on my account. That's verses 29 to 30, 23. Yeah, 33, excuse me. Jesus was in effect telling these disciples of John to remind John of what the Old Testament said of Messiah. He also graciously warned them, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Don't let what you perceive of Messiah trouble you. and cause you to begin to doubt. That, set, that statement satisfied them, and then they, and they returned. I like what R.C. Sproul said here, commenting, Do you like to keep your religious affections in secret? Particularly from your friends who are not enamored with Christ? Is there a sense in which Jesus though you embrace him as your redeemer, is still a bit offensive to you? There are many, many people who struggle with that. I don't want to be unpopular. And if I talk about Jesus, they're not going to like it. I just, just heard stuff on the, the TV about how you can... Go and spend Thanksgiving with family and talk about your religion and, or not talk about religion or not talk about politics. <laughs> Why? That upsets people. We want to keep peace and harmony in the family. So we're going to just shut up about Jesus. But Jesus said, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And we'll touch on that here later in the message too. But So then after John's disciples left, Jesus spoke to the crowd about John's ministry, commending it, that it was indeed from God that, that, he, that John was the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then he applied this to the kingdom. And there in verse number 28, let me read that for you real quick here. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's all about the kingdom. 
And then we read, when all the people heard this, the t and the tax collectors all too, they declared God just. That is, right. And having seen, uh, and why? Because they were had been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected him. Rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Why? And it was evidenced in their refusal to be baptized by him. Verse 29. Those who had believed John repented and gave evidence of their repentance by being baptized, showing God to be right, just. The Pharisees, on the other hand, rejected John's message because they judged themselves to be righteous by their own standards. And it's this very contrast that Luke gives us in the text that is before us. This crowd, this great crowd that came to hear and to be healed. Some of them are going to repent and show evidence of their repentance. Some of them are going to hear the words and resist them with all of their fury. Obedience. It is obedience that justifies God. It's obedience. The Old Testament prophets were used to deliver God's message in the form of oracles. Of the oracles, there were two kinds. Positive oracles and negative oracles. Oracles of wheel. W-A-E-L. That's old, an old English term. Wheel. Good. For good. Pleasant. Good news. And, our, and oracles of woe. Bad news. The wheel pronounced God's blessing on people for demonstrating obedience. Reflecting their devotion to God and His purpose or will. The negative oracles were prefaced by the word woe. A woe indicated that one, it's, woe is not a threat. It's not a threat. Woe indicates that the ones against whom the oracle was pronounced were already the objects of his judgment. Not saying, hey, straighten up or you will. No. Whoa, you are already under his judgment. So let's consider this. The wheel and woe of God. And that's in the text here uh, before us, verses 20 to 22, or uh, 20 to 26, excuse me. And there are four declarations of blessedness. Wheel. Oracles of blessedness, wheel. But there are, but these four are not independent. They are interdependent. They relate to each other. The first, in the first one, and we touched on that last week. I want to emphasize it again. Describes the possibility of blessedness. 
How can I be blessed? That is a declaration that comes from God, and only God can, uh, can give it. So Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor. Verse 20, this term for poor derives from the verb signifying a condition of a beggar, cringing and crouching, utterly dependent on another. A condition of self-conscious anguish of destitution. It's a spiritual poverty that's referred to here. And simply because the disciples were not poor men. Matthew was a tax collector. He, was, he had a very lucrative job. Peter had a fishing business and then hired people to work for him. These guys weren't poor financially. But wait a minute, this, here Jesus speaks of a spiritual poverty that by its very nature could result in material poverty. As the disciples showed, because even though they were very successful in their professions, they gave up everything of value to them and followed Jesus. As Peter declared, Lord, we have forsaken all for you. The scripture identifies four kinds of material poverty. There's the poverty of those who will not work. Boy, do we have a lot of that going on today. They just don't want to work, so the government helps them out by taking care of them so they don't have to work. <laughs> there are a lot of people who would work, but they found that they are more comfortable not working because of the government handouts. What did Paul say of that crowd? If they don't work, they shouldn't eat. Then there's the poverty of victims of calamity through, who through no fault of their own are now destitute. We want to help those. We want to reach out to them. We want to provide for them and, and care for them as we can. And likewise, thirdly, there's a poverty of victims of oppression and persecution. But then, number four, and this is the one that's, in, that's involved here, are those who make great personal sacrifices for righteousness' sake. It is those that Jesus speaks of here, those who look for fulfillment in the approval of God, and see their own value as reflected in the blessing of the king. This condition and its rewards are possible only when one is brought by the Spirit to renounce all to follow Jesus and to look to and to receive from Him alone fullness of life. To these Jesus declares, Yours is the kingdom of God. Wow. Yours is the kingdom of God. On the other hand, the Pharisees lurking in the crowd rejected this concept, as do all unbelievers. And even though they acquired much wealth and the 
the Pharisees and the scribes were wealthy men. They often acquired this wealth even by, by harming others as Jesus spoke of widows' houses, confiscating widows' houses. And even though this, they, they got these, their wealth in a wrong way, they, they attributed their wealth to the blessing of God. We're blessed of God because we have wealth. And the, this guy over here has more wealth than I do. He's more blessed of God than I am. Even though he stole most of it. Ah, but Jesus pronounced against them the woe. There, verse 24. Woe to you who are rich. Or think you're rich. For you have received your consolation. That's it. You don't, you don't get the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not yours. You enjoy what you have right now because that's all there is. Material wealth and spiritual blindness equal awful poverty. As stated before, empty hearts Jesus can fill. And those who are filled with pride and the love of wealth, He will not fill. Because they are already full of with their own fullness. The second beatitude builds on the first and describes the condition of, a beggar, of the beggar striving in constant hunger. He's destitute. And he's hungry. And Jesus promises to satisfy this hunger now. Spiritual hunger. You shall be satisfied. Now you shall be satisfied. Matthew reveals that this hunger is for righteousness. And the hunger is met with righteousness, but not one's own Christ's righteousness. And this hunger, though immediately satisfied, will in, in, its in its satisfaction only increase. It is a perpetual hunger, but the satisfaction also is also abundant and expansive. No matter how hungry you are, Jesus is more than sufficient to fulfill it. And then one who is fulfilled daily with Christ's righteousness in is truly blessed. But, to the, to the other crowd, woe to you who are full now, dining in the rich and expensive restaurants on lavish meals. And he says, you shall be hungry. Verse 25. The third beatitude builds on the brokenness of the spiritual beggar. Blessed are you who weep now. This is an audible weeping, a sobbing. For you shall laugh. Verse 21b. 
And this warning of the godly is due to the recognition of the power of sin and the utter helplessness of one to overcome both it and its destructive force in his life. This kind of weeping is a constant cry to God for help. A condition of contrition and repentance. And this ought to be that which goes on continually in one's life. A perpetual repentance. And here's another paradox. Entrance to the kingdom requires continual repentance. Reflecting constant sorrow and sobbing. Yet the reward is perpetual joy and laughter at knowing God's favor. This promised joy is not for the eternal realm. It's for now. Roland Hill, who is one of the old Puritan writers, said, If I may be permitted to shed one tear as I enter the portals of the city of my God, it will be at taking an eternal leave of that beloved and profitable companion. Repentance. You hear what he's saying? He said, the one thing I'm going to miss when I get into the city of God is the continual repentance that accompanied me on my earthly journey. <laughs> Interesting thought. Indeed, one's present existence may be filled with both sobbing in repentance and the joy of forgiveness, creating a perpetual yearning for his coming and the reward of eternal consolation. Oh, Jesus, come soon. Come soon. On the other hand, the ungodly may laugh now, but judgment's coming. Woe to you who weep. Laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Utter darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine? For all eternity. The fourth beatitude and is this addressed here the it addresses the consequences of following Christ in society you go to Christ and he meets your need and then you follow Christ because you know that in him is the only source of blessing and the only source of, of fulfillment the only satisfaction in your life and the more you follow Jesus in society the more you will be rejected and persecuted blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man that's verse 22 here again is a paradox. How can it be a blessing to be hated? <laughs> In the culture, popularity is king. Every one of us wants to be liked. I mean, that is, that's, that is a, just a simple condition of life. We want to be loved by others. We want to be thought well of. We want to be accepted. 
We want to be elevated in their estimation. And people go to great lengths to be accepted and lauded by others. Does it not seem right then? And to Christians, think about this, Christian. Doesn't it seem right to you that one should strive to be esteemed in the eyes of others in order to be an effective witness of the gospel to them? If they like you, if they esteem you highly, it aren't aren't you aren't they then likely to more to be more receptive to the message of Christ from your lips? That's an issue. It's one thing to be rejected due to one's ill manners or one's offensiveness. And it's also true that Scripture requires believers to seek peace and pursue it with all men, to be the salt of the earth, kind, gracious, and friendly. One would think that this kind of sincere and genuine goodness would be applauded in society. And it is. But those who have it and express loyal devotion to Jesus Christ will ultimately and inevitably find reproach. Why? Jesus is dangerous. He was the object of hatred because those around him understood how dangerous he was to them and their way of life. He was constantly contradicting them and exposing their sin and their selfishness and their supposed godliness, which was really evil. Evil hates good. Well, we see that today, even from our own government. You want to do right, you'll be hated for it. Paul said to Timothy there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, period. Paul had experienced it and he's telling Timothy every believer who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Christ's ministry progressed with his gracious miracles, his good deeds done in the Father's name, you'd think that he would be, would be openly and warmly received by Everyone, but no, there was a growing hatred, particularly by the religious leaders. And they were evil men, and thereby threat and they thereby they see saw Jesus as a threat to them. They went so far as to explain his powers originating from Satan, Beelzebub. Think about it. 
at the end of his ministry, in the last days of his ministry, he raised Lazarus from the dead, a man who was dead and buried for long enough to prove that he just didn't revive on his own. He raised him from the dead. That alone should have awakened everybody to the fact that here is Messiah. But what happened? In the, in the face of this convincing evidence, the religious leaders saw only a threat to themselves. They called a council together to protest. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Yeah. That, he, that's Messiah. Messiah is going to do many signs, right? Isn't that what the Old Testament prophets told you? And where else have you seen many signs? Where in history has anybody come forward performing many signs? Where else in the the whole of Israel or the whole of the world at that time. Was there anyone performing many signs? That was a clear and evidence that he was the Messiah. But what did they see? What did they see it? They saw it a threat. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? Oh, but the Romans, we're going to upset the Romans, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Oh, my position and my wealth and my being lauded in the eyes of everyone is at risk here. Because the Romans are going to be displeased, and they're going to come and take us away and set somebody up, uh, us up in their place, and what will happen to us? That's John 11, 47, 48. Their position in the eyes of the people was in danger. It was either Jesus or them. And thus the high priest pronounced, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. They wanted to kill Jesus. And they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Because he was a thorn in their flesh. A dead man living. <laughs> yeah. It's better for you that one should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. This rejection was in the plan of God, however, and to bring about redemption for the people of God. At the same time, uh, it's going to be that way for his disciples. Note that in the Beatitude, Jesus refers to his being the Son of Man. I pointed that out earlier. I pointed it out again. This is about the kingdom of God on earth and the king on earth and how the kingdom of God and the king are a threat to the rest of the world. This is Important as the blessings and the woes relate to the on, to ongoing spiritual warfare. We're, we're, 
we're in a battle. I saw, I saw an interesting meme. It says, Christians think that they should be on a cruise ship, entertained and blessed with comfort. No, we're on a battleship in the midst of a war. We're in a spiritual warfare. And these blessings and, and woes, these wheels and woes, define God's value system, which is required of every believer and also for ultimate victory. The reward of obedience is rejoice in that day. Verse 23, rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Want to have great reward in heaven? Obey him now. Follow him closely, even in the midst of persecution. Speak openly of Jesus. The very same day that the saints are persecuted for the sake of the king and the kingdom, they will leap for joy. The very day that they are victims of false witnesses and slander for Christ's sake, in that, that very day they rejoice. And they're in good company. For that's, Jesus says, that's how they treated the, pro the true prophets in Israel that were before you. But to the religious leaders, and to the enemies of Christ, the Son of Man pronounced His judgment. Woe to you when all speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Isn't that interesting? Go back in the Old Testament and read. Man, they elevated the false prophets. They lauded the false prophets. They jailed the the true prophets, they killed the true prophets. They persecuted the true prophets. But they loved the false prophets. Boy, that's, isn't that a problem in our country today? We have our churches full of false prophets trying to build empires for themselves. Whew. Woe. Woe to them. So in closing here is a caution. Beware of compromise, especially that which seeks to avoid the offense of the cross. And as I pointed out, modern Christianity is filled with prophets who seek to please both those who embrace Christ as the Son of God and those who reject Him out of hand. They want to get please everybody. To some, Jesus was a lunatic. But to others, he was nothing more than a great man, a wonderful teacher whose lessons are of great value in the general ethic, ethical virtue of mankind. But all of these take offense at the God-man who demands death to self and full surrender to the will of God. The task of his true prophets is to proclaim him in truth. 
how they perceive the message and respond to Jesus will determine their eternal destiny. What about you? What about you? Father, thank you for this tremendous passage from Luke's Gospel. It really explains and relates here to us what, how we are to live in this world today in order to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we know that we can't do it on our own. We need you. We need your spirit to guide and lead. We need your word. Father, keep us true. Keep us poor. Keep us hungry. Keep us weaving. Even though we may suffer persecution for it. For the fires of persecution are the birthplace of revival. Lord, we praise you and thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.